Good morning. Pray with me as we get ready to get into God's word. <clears throat> Jesus, we just, um, I know uh, in this room and that absolutely in our world, there is, there, there are a lot of needs and um, we know that you are well able to take care of all of that stuff. And so in light of that, we just want to take a moment to just thank you for your goodness, Jesus. And just remember the fact that we are blessed beyond what we could ever, ever, ever deserve. And um, I know that nothing in and of ourselves is going to be able to uh, change us or help us to see you more clearly. We need your Holy Spirit to do that. So would you work through your word by your spirit uh, make it come alive to us and sink into our hearts in a real way um, that our minds would be transformed uh, and our lives would be transformed. We just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So in the beginning of this Advent season, it's very interesting that we're at the end of the book of Luke. Normally, you jump in at the beginning of the book of Luke in the beginning of Advent season. We're at the end. And uh, so it's, it's a strange place to be, but it's also kind of perfect because I think for us and for me, at least, it really paints the picture of what Christmas was for. And obviously it's the, the cute little baby Jesus thing is, is awesome. I mean, the most amazing thing, uh, miracle that it's just that somehow God became flesh, fully God and fully man. I don't understand that. I'm a pastor. I can't explain that to you. I know that's what happened. I don't know how that works. But uh, if, we, um, if we look at the book of Luke, we think back to, I mean, it's, we've been in Luke for like over a year, I think. If we look back, the whole book of Luke has been building up to this moment. I mean, you think back to where we started, where angels appeared to this betrothed couple who says like, I know this wasn't your plan, but a baby's going to be born. And a Roman emperor decides, hey, I'm going to take a census at the perfect time, even though he had no idea what he was doing, took a census at the perfect time that would land Mary in Bethlehem, that Jesus would be born there, just like it was prophesied. If we go further back in the Bible, we see in the nation of Israel, God's special chosen people, and there's prophets that are prophesying a Messiah is going to come, a David-like king who will establish God's kingdom forever for all nations, and he will be born as a suffering servant. We go back even a little further to Abraham, a childless man who Jesus or who God promises that he will be the father of many people, more than he could count or more than the stars that he could count in the sky, and that through this, uh, through his family, all nations would be blessed. We go back even further than that. We see Adam and Eve sitting outside of the garden they were just kicked out of and being promised by God that a son would be born who would break the curse and crush the serpent's head and restore them back to the Eden that they once enjoyed. And we go further back than that, further than we could even really try to imagine. And we see this picture in Revelation 13 that there is a lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. 
that before Jesus made anything, he already was planning on going to the cross for the world he would create. And we jump into our passage today, this real moment that happened 2,000 years ago, and all of human history has been building to this moment. And so just to get our bearings again in the story, where Chad was last week, Jesus has just been arrested, taken to Caiaphas' house. He's the high priest at the time. The disciples have kind of scattered and are in hiding, except for Peter, who kind of followed at a distance. Peter's just denied Jesus. And that's where we're jumping in, in the end of Luke chapter 22. You can follow along on the screen. It says, now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When the day came, the assembly of the elders and of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, but they led him away to their council. And they said, if you're the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the son of man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the son of God then? He said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. And uh, right now, a group of us are going through, uh, a group of us on staff are going through this process of licensing and ordination with the free church. And so it's kind of going through our statement of faith and, and, um, and doing some, you know, just reading on theology and writing papers and um, kind of defending the, the doctrine that we hold to. And uh, so for the last few months, we've been in the article of faith that talks about Jesus and, um, and one of the biggest things uh, that, is, um, that we've been talking about and writing about is just the fact that Jesus is fully God and fully man. It's, it's like one of those things where it's like, I know that's the reality. I also have no idea how that works. I mean, that is just the way that God could do that is beyond what I can understand. Um, and so I'm thinking about that as this, at the same time as I'm uh, getting ready for this sermon. So as I'm reading all this stuff, Jesus being fully man, so experiencing things like we do, but also being fully God, having all of the power and authority that he has as God. I'm like, as I'm reading through this, I'm just like, man, Jesus is wielding his power and authority in a very strange way. This is not what I expect God in the flesh to look like. <laughs> that he would be submitting himself to this absolute joke of a trial. And it just looks like to me the opposite of power and control. Because it's just like the Pharisees and the Sadducees who have kind of been the main antagonists the whole way through um, and have just always been like asking sneaky questions and plotting and trying to figure out, they like finally have him arrested. And you just know they're feeling so smug about it. And it's just like, ugh, how, like, why? How would Jesus be submitting to these guys, excuse me, and letting them uh, take this kind of power and arrest him and beat him? And it just, it's like, this doesn't make any sense. Why would he be doing this? And the disciples, you got to imagine being one of his disciples, 
Like they are absolutely shocked. Now, on one hand, it's, it's a little bit, um, it's a little bit like, hey, you guys, like he's been telling you that this was going to happen many, many times. He's like, guys, I'm going to be killed and I'm going to rise again in three days. And they just don't get it. It's so outside of what their expectations are for Jesus that they just literally don't understand what he's telling them. And so now that it's happening, they think, I'm, I'm sure, they think everything that they've believed, all the time they've spent following him, all the things that he's been teaching them, all the things that they've been excited for, being a part of this coming kingdom that he was going to instate, they're like, this was all for nothing. This has all just imploded. And they're scared. They think, what if we're next? What if they come after us? So they're just in a horrible spot. It looks like to the disciples that the wheels have just completely fallen off. And their whole thing, everything about Jesus has just gone into the ditch. It's over. And I don't know about you, but I feel like I've been there before. Have you ever had a moment in your life where it's like, well, I guess God just forgot to think about me. Because literally, you know, everything has just blown up in my life. I have no idea how this is ever going to work out. And it just leads us to this place of like, is any of this real? God, do you even care? Do you even love me? Why is this happening? God, if you're really powerful, why are you letting this kind of stuff happen? And so I know that that's probably where many of us are at, maybe even right now today. And I just want to encourage you, okay? Often when we're in that place, we have a lot of sometimes hurt, sometimes missed expectations with God. God, I thought it was going to be like this, and now it's like this, and I don't understand what I've missed. And so sometimes we come to God and, and we sort of, you know, I think often unintentionally come to God with our arms folded a little bit. Like, God, I already told you what I want you to do. So until we're going to talk about that, until you're going to do that, I don't really have anything else to say. And, you know, not to make light of it, because that's real. Like, that's just really how we feel. And again, I don't think for, for many of us, it doesn't come out of this like malicious place, out of a hateful place. It just comes out of like, to be frank and just putting myself in the same place, comes out of my own immaturity. And my own kind of pouty child nature, because I don't like the way that things are going right now. And now, again, I'm not trying to belittle anything that's going on in anybody's life, because I, I, I'm right there with you. Absolutely. But I think what holds us back sometimes is then we lose our sensitivity to be able to hear what God really wants to tell us in the middle of what he's doing. Because it might be that in the middle of the difficult things that you're experiencing, he wants to do something far more beautiful than what you've been asking for. Because if we want to see a miracle, often we have to be in an impossible situation. And if we want to see provision, miraculously, we have to be in need. If we want to see God's faithfulness, often we need to see the faithfulness of things that we trusted in fail. The idols that we trusted in, the things that we've put our hope in fail so that we lean back on God's faithfulness and see that he's never failed us. And to see a resurrection, there has to be a cross. And so my encouragement to us this morning is let's come with open hands and open ears and open hearts to say, God, I maybe have some hurt. I maybe have some missed expectations. 
I may be confused this morning, but I want to just hear from you. Because as we continue to read about what Jesus is about to do, I think we'll see a very clear picture of what he thinks about us, how far he's willing to go for us. So let's continue in chapter 23. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. They began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered them, you have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether this man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his, his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people, and he said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people, and after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. Now, I think this is fascinating, okay? So, obviously, there's a lot that we just read, kind of a long passage. But basically, Jesus, uh, Jesus is brought before Pilate because Pilate's the one that actually has authority to condemn Jesus to death. Pilate doesn't want anything to do with it. So, when he starts to hear, oh, this guy's from Galilee, that's Herod's turf, I can send him to Herod and I don't have to deal with this. So I'll let Herod make the decision. And Herod's kind of just a tool, and he just thinks like he's going to see a Jesus magic show. And Jesus doesn't do it. In fact, Jesus doesn't say even one word to Herod. And so Herod just fi finally just beats him up, mocks him, and sends him back to Pilate. So now he comes back to Pilate with all the Pharisees and Sadducees dragging him along. So these guys are just like whiny little kids like, Jesus is being bad. And, and Pilate's like, I don't care. And then Herod's like, I don't care. And now Pilate's like, why are you back here? I already said this guy's not guilty. Herod said this guy's not guilty. He didn't make any decision. Like, why are you guys here again? It's, it's embarrassing. But even these evil rulers, like Herod was a really bad dude, just killed people just because, just because he wanted to. Even he didn't kill Jesus. Pilate, I mean, he's also a real questionable dude, 
not afraid to kill people. He also does not want to kill Jesus. These evil rulers can see that he doesn't deserve death, but this is exactly why Jesus came. And we see this in, in, in John. He says, I have authority to lay down my life and take it up again. And it's like the most clear not guilty verdict ever, right? Jesus has never done anything wrong ever in his entire life. It's like the easiest, like, nope, this guy hasn't done anything wrong. Yet justice feels so elusive. And part of it is because the people in this story, I don't think are, they're not primarily thinking about what's the just thing to do. Pilate seems to be thinking that way a little bit, but everybody's got a deeper motive, right? Pharisees and Sadducees, we already know that those guys don't care. They just want to hold on to their little piece of the pie, you know, their little bit of control and authority. But it's just sad. It's just embarrassing. They can only go so far before they have to go crawling to Pilate or Herod and ask to like actually make some real big decisions. Herod is trying to stay in Rome's good graces, and he honestly just doesn't care. He just wants to see a magic show. He just wants to be entertained. He just wants people to make him happy. And as long as he keeps Rome happy, he gets to keep being king. And Pilate's in a similar place. He's had all these insurrections and riots and stuff, and he cannot afford another account of something getting back to Rome because Rome doesn't just fire you if you do a bad job. They kill you. So Pilate's just like, I can't afford another bad report going back to Rome that I didn't keep the peace in Jerusalem, which I don't know, even still today, Jerusalem is just an explosive hotbed of tension. So, I mean, he's got a really tough job and he's feeling the anxiety about that. You can see everybody in this story is like wringing their hands with anxiety. What's going to happen? Is this going to turn out okay for me? Everyone except Jesus. Now, granted, he's, I'm sure he's not, he's not having a good time by any means. Like, this is, not, this is not enjoyable. He doesn't, in one sense, doesn't want to be doing this. We see that in the garden, you know, if there's any other way. But he's completely submitted to God's will, and he's doing exactly what he knows he's supposed to do. He's not wondering, is this going to go the right way? He knows what he's doing. There's no fear or anxiety in Jesus in that way. Not like that. He's not wondering what's going to happen. Not wondering, oh, is this going to turn out well? He knows what he's called to do. And in Hebrews, it says that he knew the joy that was set before him on the other side of the cross. He knew this wasn't the end of the story. So for him, this is, even though he's in custody, he's being beaten, he's being tossed from here to there, whatever, just wherever people want to send him, he's just going... He knows he's in control. He knows it. He's doing exactly what he came to do. And, the, and just that attitude of Jesus and, and just the way that he carries himself, it just inspires me. But it also makes me incredibly uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable because I see the tension of him in the Garden of Gethsemane. God, if there's any other way... I, I don't want to go through this pain. And, and granted, you know, the physical pain was bad. Absolutely horrible. Like more than any of us could imagine. Some of us in this room have maybe had very, very painful physical experiences. None like this. 
None of us have experienced something this bad. Yet, think about what he's doing. (laughs) He's not just being tortured by people. He's taking the wrath of God for the sin of the world on his shoulders. That's what he's doing. And I feel crushed under the weight of my own sin. I feel guilty and shameful about just the things that I've done. Imagine the sins of the entire world. Everyone who's ever lived, past, present, future. Think about the incredible evil and the atrocities that have been committed one against another. Jesus is carrying those things. And he says, Father, not my will, but yours be done. And he takes this cup for sure. He, he, he accepts the pain. He accepts the, the, the suffering, but without fear. At least not the kind of fear that we experience that controls us and makes us do other things, right? And sure, he's feeling anxiety, right? He sweats drops of blood, but it never in the way that it drives him. He experiences fear, I'm sure, but never in a way that it determines who he is or the way that he sees himself or the way that he interacts with other people. Let's continue verses 18 through 25. But they all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. So this is like a dude that Pilate does not like. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. See, Pilate knows what's right. And in contrast to Jesus, he's giving in to fear. (laughs) He's like, "I I just cannot afford this to go badly. Everybody wants this. I guess this is what's gonna happen. He knows Jesus deserves mercy, and he wants to, in fact, give Jesus mercy. But Barabbas gets Jesus' mercy. And it's in the midst of all of this stuff, we get another picture of the gospel. That the murderer goes free and the Messiah goes to the cross. It's just such a clear picture of the gospel that Jesus, the innocent one gets punishment. Barabbas, the guilty one goes free. It's an unfair exchange. It doesn't feel just at all. My, it's funny because my daughter is three, about three and a half. And, um, she's very concerned about what's fair and what's not. (laughs) But it's funny though, because often for her, It's not fair for her to have to pick up the toys that she spilled on the ground. That's not fair. And uh, and it's funny, you know, we laugh at, well, I'll say we laugh with our kids. Usually they're not laughing though. Um, (laughs) When they're trying to figure out what's fair and what's not. But I think we do the same thing, right? 
our definition of justice and fairness usually just has to do with what do I want? If this isn't what I want, it's not fair. What would be fair is me getting what I want. That's fair. That's really what I deserve. I don't deserve to get something that I don't want. But God's justice is so different than that. And what's fair and unfair and what I want and don't want and all this stuff gets flipped totally upside down when it comes to Jesus. Let's continue and we'll see this a little bit more. Verses 26 through 38. As, as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene and Cyrene is actually modern day Libya who was coming in from the country. So this guy who's not even from here they grab him and he's the guy who ends up getting thrust into the middle of this crazy moment in history. Whoa. So they followed, uh, they, they laid the, on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus and there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming that they will say, blessed are the barren in the wombs that never bore, the breasts that never nursed. Then, uh, then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it's dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right, one on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he's the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an, an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. Now, this is something that always boggles my mind about Jesus. And I think it's something for me, um, you know, there's, there's things about Jesus that obviously he's, he, is our, he is a model to follow. He kind of shows us what we're created to be as humans. And there's a lot of stuff that he does, like miraculous things, like walking on water or something. You can kind of imagine like, man, what would that be like? That would be crazy. I've, oh, that'd be so weird. But this is one of the things that I just, this is hard for me to connect with. How this is possible. How what he's doing right now is possible. Because Jesus is on his way to die, yet he's still showing love. He's still primarily concerned with the people around him. I don't understand that at all. Because I have a hard time showing love when I have a headache. <laughs> and it's funny, but it's true. Like it's sadly true that it takes one little thing and all of a sudden I'm just grumpy at everybody. And I'm lucky, I'm lucky if rather than being loving, I just am not being mean. Like if I can just make it through a grumpy day without saying something hurtful and mean, then I feel like I've done a pretty good job. Jesus is actively leaning in and loving people. 
And first of all, we see that with the, the people who are falling along behind him and weeping. And he's like, hey, this, this is not the end of the story for me. It's like, I came to do this. This is what I'm supposed to be doing right now. And in fact, this is going to be my greatest victory. But his concern is for them because in about 40 years, Rome is going to come in and completely level Jerusalem. Like literally, they basically tear down the entire city and kill a lot, a lot, a lot of people indiscriminately. And it's just like this huge atrocity, this like, this is what happens when you mess with Rome. We don't care about anybody or anything. If you mess with us, you're dead. And, and Jesus is thinking about this in this moment for these people. Not, oh, you guys are going to get it. Yeah, you think, you're, you think you're doing something bad to me. Wait till you get what's coming to you. He's like, man, weep for yourselves. He's concerned for them. And then the very people that are crucifying him, he's concerned with their forgiveness. He's forgiving them in the moment that they are harming him, which is great. I mean, have you ever tried to forgive somebody who has hurt you deeply? It's not easy, especially in the moment. <laughs> in the moment, this, so I don't know about you, this, this just boggles my mind. I do not understand it. But we just see such a clear picture that Jesus is just like the, he is the embodiment of love. It just flows out of him. And it's incredible to think about the way that he sees people and interacts with people. Because like I see, I'm like walking around, you know, on just a regular day. I'm walking through the store or whatever, and I see random people and I'm just like, oh, people that I don't really care about. Random people. And Jesus looks at every person and sees a person that he has made, somebody that he's poured his image into, somebody that he has dreams for their life, deep, deep love and delight for them. Like I, I, I see a little picture of that when I, when I look at my kids. I love my, my kids are not random people to me. I love my kids. I delight in them. I have dreams for their future, what, the, what they will experience and the things that, you know, the kind of people that they'll be. Just imagine Jesus walking through, the, walking through the crowds, cross on his back, you know, blood in his eyes and the making out shadows of people as he walks past them, seeing them, knowing their name, loving them, saying, this is for you. Saying, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. I can't, I can't wrap my head around that. It's so unlike what I experience in my life. And so different than what I am. But he is the very definition of love. That's what, that's what John says, that God is love. We look at Jesus and we see what it looks like when love has body. And it just makes me wonder, why do I find it so hard to trust him? When I'm going through difficult things in my life, why do I always second guess his intentions for my life? Why do I find it hard to believe that he wouldn't only have the best in mind for me? That if he was willing to do this for me, to go to the cross for me, 
How much more would he not give me everything that I need all the time, never delay, always there, right on time, exactly what I need. So let's continue. Let's wrap up our last few verses here. One of the criminals who were, who, uh, who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God? since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. We indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. He said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. I think in this whole, this whole saga, we've seen a lot of characters and maybe we relate to certain people along the way. But I think the one person, you know, like we see the disciples missing the point. Obviously, the Pharisees and Sadducees have totally missed the point. Pilate doesn't get it. Herod doesn't get it. Nobody gets it. The one person who understands, it seems, what's going on is this thief on the cross who's hanging there next to Jesus and understands, I deserve to be here. He does not. And I think this guy is the one guy, he knows the answer to a question that many of us get wrong. Because the question is, who deserves the cross? And I don't think it's far enough to say, well, not Jesus. There's lots of people in the story that understand Jesus doesn't deserve the cross. But it seems like the thief is the only one that understands, I deserve it. We deserve it. And like the gospel really doesn't make sense unless we understand our position before God. That we have offended a holy God by our sin. And I think we tend to make the grave mistake of thinking that somehow we can compare ourselves to somebody else. When the Bible says so clearly that if we've missed it in one point, if we've fallen short in one way, we've missed the whole thing. And I think we often look at the terrible things going on in the world and like, man, those people are dirt. You know, those people are gross. Those people should, should, you know, get what's coming to them. And not recognizing that like everybody else in the Bible who ever sees God, they don't say, they don't say, oh God, those people are so bad. You should go get them. They say, woe is me because I am unclean. And everybody that I know, the whole nation that I live in, the entire world that I live in, everybody is unclean. Nobody does what's right. Nobody says what's right. You think about all the atrocities that have been committed in even just in the last few years against people. Here in our country, things that our country has done against other people, countries against countries, individuals against individuals. You think about that. That's not just on that one person, although they will give an account. That's on me as well. I am a part of this whole thing. We are all in this together, collectively standing before God, guilty and condemned under his wrath. We deserve the cross. And if we miss that, we're going to miss the whole thing because Jesus came with such intensity. I mean, the cross, this is an intense, intense moment. We think about what happens at Christmas, though, that God comes from heaven to earth you think about, would you rather be in heaven 
where everything is the way you always dreamed it would be or here on earth. That is a greater gap than we give it credit for. That even that, there is an intensity to Jesus coming. I don't think Jesus came because he's like, oh, you guys mostly have it right. You're mostly okay. I just have a couple small tweaks for you. He came because we were dead in our sin. Standing under the wrath of God that has to be poured out. That Jesus as the righteous judge doesn't say, oh, it's fine. I'll just let it go. All the, all the sins that have been committed against me and other people and against yourself, I just let it go. It doesn't matter. That Jesus says, no, it does matter. In fact, it's so serious that I will take it all. I will pay the debt. And he takes it in his own body, <clears throat> spills his own blood, so that we, the, the very perpetrators of evil against God and ourselves and one another, that we could actually, through Jesus Christ, be forgiven and become delighted in children of God. It's the greatest reversal in all of ever. <laughs> that we could go from being enemies of God, deserving his wrath, to being his children, just poured out blessing upon us. Because Jesus offers not punishment, but eternal life. That is how he judges righteously. And he judges from a throne, but it's a throne that he got to through a cross. And so as we move into communion, the eternal life that Jesus offers by his own definition in John 17, Jesus says that, Eternal life is to know God and the one that he sent, to have a relationship with God. Yeah, and I invite those who are serving communion, come on up. Band, you can come on up too. To know God and the one he sent, to join in the relationship. There's this everlasting relationship that has always existed between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They just love one another, three in one. It's a grand mystery of how that works but we're invited into this love that we didn't initiate, that we didn't, don't have to sustain. We're invited into it. And this is the picture of communion as we share. As you take uh, from the plate, there are two cups, top one with juice, the bottom one with a little cracker. And this is open to anybody who's put their faith in Jesus. Um, if you have not put your faith in Jesus yet, we ask that you just let it pass by. Uh, this is a celebration of something that God has already done in our hearts through faith. And, um, and if you want to put your faith in Jesus this morning, I'd be happy to uh, serve you communion after the service. So as they're passing these elements, I want us to think about what this means as we take the bread and we drink the juice. We remember the fact that Jesus was the embodiment of love. That he came and actually didn't just come with nice words and teachings, that he lived a perfect life for us. The life that we could never live on our own. Perfect, sinless life. And then he spilled his blood paying the payment that we should have paid. And as we take that communion and it goes into our body, 
It's incredible, incredible symbol of the way that we receive by faith that gift of Jesus. We are granted his forgiveness and his righteousness is credited to us. And we receive his Holy Spirit who gives us life from the inside out. And so you're not just eating a stale cracker and drinking some lame juice. We're remembering Jesus. We're, we're actually participating in a symbol of something that he has done on the inside. So with that in mind, let's take the bread. The Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took the bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take it together. And in the same way, also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's take it together. Now, I just invite you to join me in a time of prayer and reflection. So I invite you just to close your eyes, maybe put out your hands in front of you. Jesus, we thank you for your body and your blood. And in this Advent season, we think about the fact that you came and you put on flesh for us, that you came to rescue us. We remember the fact that you have not held anything back. You gave all that you could give that you were beaten all the way to death on a cross. There was nothing else you could have given. You gave all that you had and we receive it today. And even as we take the cup and we take the bread, we just ask that your Holy Spirit in a fresh way would pour your love into our hearts again today, Jesus. We know that we come to your table crippled and needy bringing nothing but our need for forgiveness and our wounded past. And God, this morning, I just ask for people in this room who feel like they've never experienced your love before. Pray that your Holy Spirit would pour it out on them right now, Jesus, right now in this moment. Would they understand because of the work of Jesus, how far you were willing to go for them. And God, I know that the, the circumstances of their life have maybe been extremely difficult and it's caused them to doubt whether that you even cared. And God, I pray that they would see in Jesus that there was no length that you wouldn't go to to prove your love for them. God, I ask for people who just feel disappointed this morning, disappointed in the way that their life has turned out. God, I pray that you would give them eyes of faith to see that you have done so much more than, than they could ever see. And give them eyes of faith to see beyond their circumstances today, God. 
that you are writing a beautiful story that will have its ultimate culmination when they are at home with you, the place they've longed for and dreamed about. Jesus, that you are preparing a place for them. Jesus, I ask for people who are sick and hurting this morning, that they would feel your shoulders, or your, your hands on their shoulders, holding them up and strengthening them right now this, in this moment. God, for those who maybe have withheld forgiveness because they think that by somehow withholding forgiveness, they think they're hurting that other person and they've just been hurting themselves. Jesus, I pray that you would just pour out your spirit on that place of hurt, that you'd show them the, the incredible forgiveness that we've been granted, that they would open their hands and just let it fall. God, those who have been carrying a weight on their shoulders, they, they would experience the, the yoke that's easy and the burden that's light. Jesus, I pray for clear minds and hearts at peace right now in this moment that people's minds would go to peace and clarity and they would be able to hear your voice speaking to them. God, in this morning that, that we would trust that we have everything that we need, that you have not withheld anything from us, that we would recognize that, we, that our only proper response is to worship you. God, I ask this morning for people who are in this room, they're recognizing they have never put their faith in you and they're recognizing they are going to stand before a holy God one day and they will have no excuses. And God, I ask that your Holy Spirit would just rise up inside of them and give them the courage to just put all of their faith in you to quit thinking that they have to clean themselves up, but come to you and say, God, I need to be cleaned. Like the thief on the cross that said, God, I don't think I can remember all the verses in the Bible, but would you remember me? God, I know I can't do a good job. I've already messed up my life, but would you take my life? Because Jesus, I know you have a beautiful story for them and a beautiful future. Jesus, we thank you that this morning as we gathered, it's not simply a place where we just talk about stuff, but that your spirit is here and that where your spirit is, there's freedom and there's power. So God, we just pray that as we worship you in this moment, that we would just exalt you, that you would be seated and enthroned on our praises, that we would surrender to you and give you our hearts again. Father, would you continue to move in this church? We are, we are so simple and so lost without you. We have nothing to offer, but you just freely give yourself, freely pour yourself out. And we're just so thankful. Thank you for chasing after us when we don't know what to do. And we just respond in worship now. In Jesus' name, let's sing in worship.